Hello, it is another beautiful day. We are alive. We are all doing well. We are here and now. And you happen to be spending this moment listening to the Mind Body Musings podcast. And my gratitude for that is infinite. So thank you for being here. Thank you for coming back to this show time and time again. Or if this is your first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is a great episode to be starting your journey out with us. Because today we are going into a topic that, oh, I love so much. Don't know where my passion for speaking to mothers has come from. Probably from my clients, actually, because I have so many clients who have children. And that's where a lot of our time goes into. But I have certainly found myself really passionate about me understanding and exploring the the new challenges that mothers have to go through with balancing like the literal tangible aspects of life but also the emotional psychological spiritual ones so in today's episode we are going to be speaking with someone who i find to be a fascinating human being on so many different levels she has been listening to this show for a very long time and when she was on instagram we kept in touch for a couple of years, I would I would say, and all along I was watching her and how she was raising her children from afar, and I found a lot of the things that she was talking about when it comes to being a mother and your emotions to be really fascinating and really needed. Like, way more people need to be hearing Brittany's messages. So I wanted to have her on the podcast today to talk about something really crucial, and that is dissolving mommy guilt by experiencing and validating your emotions, especially anger. And what you're going to hear today in this podcast is going to wake a lot of you up, I think, whether or not you have kids. I don't have children, and yet this was so helpful for me and validating for me and um, soothing for me. The raw honesty this woman has is inspiring. Like She's going to come out and say things that you may not hear other mommies say or, or quote, admit publicly. And so what she's doing by speaking her real truth is making space for other people to feel like they can too, which is what we probably need more of for mommies, is to be talking about these really, really deep, raw aspects to motherhood that are not being talked about. So... Here is her official bio, because I can't skip over that. Brittany Joy is a mother of two toddlers, a writer, a serial coffee drinker, and a passionate self-acceptance advocate. She lives in a small rural town with her outdoorsy husband and their kids. She has been blogging at Bodacious Brittany for two years on topics including self-acceptance, recovering from diet culture, marriage, and motherhood. She is many things, but most importantly, she is herself and is passionate about helping women be bodaciously themselves, too. All right, without further ado, let's head on over. It is such a treat to be here 
with you, Brittany. I have been really looking forward to slowing down with you and hearing your perspective on motherhood and your own journey and your own story. And you are someone that I... I've just been, I mean, it's so interesting how this cycle works, but I know that you've been following the show and listening to it for a few years now, I believe, but Mm -hmm. your stories on Instagram, I mean, we're going to talk about social media and what happened with that because I'm very curious, but when I was following along your journey, you have such a, like, I want to use the term earth mama feel to you, like very grounded. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. Very grounded and very nurturing, but also like straight up. And you know how to tell truth so beautifully and aligned with you. So I'm just so excited to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much, Maddie. That means so much to me. I've been following your work for a couple of years and really, really looked up to you as a woman who's really in touch with who she is. And I feel like the compliment of Earth Mama, but also boldly speaking my own truth, that is the dichotomy of my entire life, just really Mm -hmm. trying to be as grounded as I can, but then also having this aspect of myself where, yeah, I'm just kind of full on and I'm kind of in it to win it. So thank you so much for saying that. And I am just, if you could see me right now, I have the biggest smile on my face. I'm just so overjoyed to be talking with you. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's a very unique combination because I feel that like earth mama can also mean like you're totally into, um, I, I don't want to say like, um, like spirituality necessarily because it can be all over the place and what an earth mama is, but it overall mm-hmm. it's like this really nurturing grounding energy. And yeah. sometimes that means that you're not really speaking all of that, like super, um, I don't want to say loud truth, but like, that's what's coming mm-hmm. up for me. Just like bold and blunt mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. fearless or no, in yeah, fear, exactly. but like being honest still, regardless of that. Yeah, I feel like you've really perfectly described me, which makes me so happy because even though I'm not on social media anymore, I'm so glad that that part of who I am, the way you've described it, that really came across on my social media because that was the whole reason I was growing my platform online um, and the whole reason I started Instagram storying is because I really wanted to show people you can really show up as yourself and people are going to resonate with it no matter what it looks like. And I've really felt my whole life that, um, maternal energy. People have always said that I'm come really naturally to motherhood, that I'm a very, um, nurturing person. Um, but again, I have this side of me where I'm like, like a real strong feminist. I really stand in my own. I really want to show up like in total boldness. So I love that you saw that in my social media because we've never met in real life. We've never talked on the phone. So I love that you experienced what I was trying to put out on social media. Isn't that kind of funny that we've never talked before? Because I feel like we definitely have. I know we had talked about it before, like, hey, let's like set up a video call or something, but that didn't happen. But it definitely feels like we've known each other for a lot longer. And in a sense, we have. I've heard your voice in my earbuds for like ever. So it just feels like I'm listening to the podcast right now. (laughs) It's amazing. It's it's really cool. So before we get into um, some questions that I have around, like, especially the social media detox, I'm just very curious um, because where'd you go? I don't know where you went. And I just want (laughs) to be caught up on that. But before we get into that, if you've been listening to the show recently, you know that I have a new question I ask all my guests Mm -hmm. and that is, Right now, what are you musing about in life? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that is taking up the majority of my headspace um, is probably hmm, 
I'm really focused on what the next phase of motherhood is going to look like for me. Um, I'm done having kids. I have two and I'm heading into like toddler and preschool years. So I'm really starting to think in the next five to 10 years, what am I going to be pursuing? Um, I'm thinking about going back to school. I'm thinking about uh, like things I want to do as far as starting a business or just really getting down to the nitty gritty of like, what did I really want to do when I was 16, 17, 18, because motherhood is so all consuming. You don't really have the opportunity to think about that until all of a sudden your kids are in school and you're a stay at home mom with no kids at home. (laughs) So I'm trying to think now, like what, who really, what is Brittany really passionate about? Who was she really before she had children while still really valuing the season that I'm in with my little kids. Um, and the other thing that I like can't stop talking about is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but I am like so in deep water with the Enneagram right now and so obsessed with it. and just want to tell everybody about it. <laughs> this is great because I actually have it on my notes to ask oh, you about that. Cause so I was reading good. your, I was reading your website and I could, I could feel how lit up you were by that. And so I just yeah. made a note like, Hey, I want to make sure I talk to her about this to, to hear more about what she's receiving from it. So totally. we'll get into that. Um, and I, I'm just, like, I guess a sub question underneath what you just shared. Do you feel that's a step that a lot of new mothers skip over of like where you're at now of like, what do I want next? It's toddler and preschool time. Mm -hmm. Like I feel ready to go back into Mm -hmm. my goals, my vision, my dreams. Do you Mm -hmm. find that a lot of moms, whether you're friends with them or just observe them from afar, Mm -hmm. skip over that? Yeah. Yeah, I do feel that way. Motherhood is a very tribal thing where we kind of just follow one another and you look to see how your mother mothered and your aunties and your friends around you. And we kind of just emulate one another. And that can sometimes lead to women just doing what everyone around them is doing. And I've never been really that kind of a person. So um, I'm in a season now where my kids are, you know, getting a little bit older and I don't feel like I have to stay in the box of stay-at-home mom. I was just talking to a really close friend about this yesterday, how women really feel like they need to check a box as far as stay-at-home mom or working mom or work-from-home mom. And I don't really think that that's important. I think all mothers should first identify you know, as a woman in their own right. And then they identify as many other things, a mother, a writer. Um, I don't really identify as a stay at home mom and I don't identify my friends, whether they work or not as working moms or stay at home moms. I identify them as mothers. And then some of them are nurses and some of them are writers and some of them volunteer or whatever it is. And I think a lot of women, um, just kind of go with the flow and follow what other people are doing. And they think, Oh, okay. Now I put my kids in preschool and now I put my kids in kindergarten. They don't think like, well, do I want to put my kids in education to begin with? Do I want to travel with my kids? Do I want to work? I don't really feel like I have to quote unquote, stay in the box as a stay at home mom to be a full-time mom. Like if I decide to go back to school or to work or to start a nonprofit, I can do all those things and still feel very, um, really identify with being a mother. It's very much a part of who I am. And I do think, yeah, a lot of women really skip thinking that through of like, what's next for me as a person. Now that I'm thinking about this, because I've never paused to consider the terms stay at home 
versus mm-hmm. working. I just like, that's mm-hmm. just kind of a, you know, it's just a part of life. Like, Oh, stay at home mom or a working mom. Um, mm-hmm. but now that I'm really pausing to think about it, that is so odd that mm-hmm. there is this label for where the location of the mother is. Are they it at is. home or are they yeah. at work? And you just don't see that with fathers. Like men don't first identify as a father and then identify with their job. They just keep it all as a part of who they are. And I think it's a feminist thing where women needed to start identify as working moms to kind of reclaim their right to be in the workforce. Um, and obviously a working mother, quote unquote, working mother has a different experience than I do as a quote unquote, stay at home mom. But I don't see a lot of value in putting her in one box and me in one box because I mean, yes, my struggles are different because I'm at home with my kids. I'm their primary caregiver and a working mother might not be the primary caregiver of her children, but she still is very much a mother in the same way that I'm a mother. Um, and I just think those boxes are, are unhelpful. I think there was a time in, in the feminist movement where we needed to identify women as working mothers to give them the credit they deserve. Cause that is a really, really hard thing to do to work full time and to run your home and to raise your children. But I think that time has kind of passed and now women can kind of identify in motherhood, however they want to, there doesn't need to be, I mean, I don't stay at home as a mother. I'm never at home as a stay at home mom. Yeah. So which that would think that admit that would label would make it even odder just because like mm-hmm. you're, you're stay at home mom, but you are not staying at home. Like you are doing no. all of the things. Yeah. And I really view, I mean, this podcast interview, I view the volunteer work that I do. I view the coffee dates that I have with my friends. I view all of that as aspects of who I am as a person and my quote unquote job And mothering is part of that. Like I'm showing my children through how I run my life and my social life and and my faith and all of that. I'm showing them what it looks like to be who I am and what I want for them in their lives. And I don't have to put those in boxes as like, now I'm being a mother and now I'm podcasting or now I'm writing. I mean, those things are just all a part of my day-to-day life. I, and I'm just like, I'm just sitting here considering this because I stay at, I mean, if I was to be put into a category of some sort of stay at home or not, I mean, I'm a stay at home podcast or a coach, yeah. whatever you want to call it. But when I think about a stay at home mom versus a stay at home me, whatever you call me, um, th- the former oh my god it sounds so much more people would be surprised like you look at my business and what I do and you think that I'm like this busy body going all around doing things Mm -hmm. but I stay at home like I literally stay at home and I relax and I nap and I watch shows and I I coach like on repeat it's like coach eat sleep coach eat sleep tv tv Mm -hmm. tv 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 like that's what I do and like my my job and my career why I can Mm -hmm. be emotionally intensive it is not like it is not super high impact on my day and my joints and my mind and my anxiety. But, but yet I I feel like there are these moms who are quote, stay at home moms who think I'm doing all these things. But in reality, in my point of view, they're doing all of these things. My job is a piece of cake in my eyes. Again, I've never been a mother, but I imagine my job is kind of a piece of cake compared to someone that's running all of the errands and being the primary caregiver of their Mm -hmm. child and also pursuing ambitions or being a working mother and and Mm -hmm. balancing work with Mm -hmm. coming home and taking care whenever they're home. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. I'm in awe of mothers really. And all you Mm do. It is interesting because on paper, you're more of a stay at home person than I am. Like I, I am not ever home. I'm really going, going, going Mm -hmm. with my kids and my kids are with me so that I'm considered a stay at home mom, but it's such a weird thing. And I, I do really just think that 
um, women have made this a block of feminism where once you have children as a woman, you then have to decide, am I going to be the kind of woman that pursues things that are important to me, or am I going to be the kind of person that quote unquote stays at home? And I think setting it up in that dichotomy is really unhelpful because you don't have to choose. Like I, I don't work outside the home because I don't have a job that would give me value to my day-to-day life, but I do work at home and outside of the home that doesn't bring income, but it does add value to my life. And so I don't have to identify as a stay-at-home mom or a working mom. I feel like we're all kind of a mix of both of those things. So what would you like to see happen with those terms? Do you want them to stay around or do you would in the dream world? Not really, no. Yeah. I think in the dream world, a better question might be like, are you the primary caregiver of your children? Is your husband or partner the primary caregiver? And I also just don't think it's a conversation that needs to happen. I mean, we often start in North America with, hi, I'm Brittany. What do you do for a living? And mm-hmm. I don't, I think that's just so focused on doing, doing, doing. And we're so focused on achievement here in our society. A better question I would ask someone when meeting them is like, what does an average day look like for you? Or what are you passionate about? Or I, I mean, essentially asking a woman, you know, are you a stay-at-home mom or what do you do for a living is essentially asking her, do you bring income to your family? And that's just not a question that I, d- I don't think our true feminist needs to check that box to, to have value. So I don't need, true. I don't need to bring, I don't bring income to my family. And that doesn't mean I don't bring value. Um, my husband's paycheck isn't what makes him valuable in our family. Um, and I think as a feminist, I give him, I get him off of that, um, you know, that mindset of like, as a man, this is what you provide for our family. You're the paycheck. I think that that toxic view of masculinity is really unhelpful for men and put, setting women up to kind of identify as whether they work or whether they mother is, is really unfeminist. Like it's just not, I, I, I have so much value and I really esteem women who work outside the home and women who stay at home. Um, but I don't think we need to make it. Yeah. Like this question we ask people, I don't really ask people that question. Yeah, Like no one walks up to me and says like a question like, well, how do you bring income into your life? Yeah. And it, you know, yeah. that's essentially the same thing. So that's really, yeah. it's really fascinating. Okay. So I want to back it up a little bit and, mm-hmm. and go into, hearing more about your story, um, Mm -hmm. and, and any portion of your upbringing or growing up that feels really relevant for your audience, Mm -hmm. because I know that you, you cover so many different things that you talk about and that you're passionate Mm -hmm. about. And so I just want to give you the floor here to share with us. What should we know about you? Yeah, that's a really open-ended question. Um, I feel like Um, lots of different people could probably identify with me and my story. Um, it's always really interesting to me to see when I share different aspects of my story, who kind of is like, Oh, and, and they kind of identify with different parts because in some ways I did have a very, you know, Christian conservative upbringing. I grew up in a town that was like totally dry. You couldn't buy liquor in the town that I grew up in, um, like really, really traditional, And in some ways, I had a very, very untraditional childhood. My dad was in prison when I was born. Um, We spent the first few years of my life fleeing from him. He was very, very abusive. Um, My mom survived a a really abusive marriage. And 
I was in foster care for a time and I have some, I mean, memories and stories that I share with people around me and, you know, the shock in their eyes is like, oh my goodness, like you experienced that. But then again, in some ways, I feel like I had a kind of quintessential childhood. I mean, I, I grew up in a small town. I had chickens and, and a cow that I raised and I went to, um, the same school for a good portion of my life after my dad, um, finally lost custody of us and we didn't have to see him anymore. Um, and we were in a safe environment. I grew up in, you know, the same town for most of my life and went to the same school and, graduated from high school and married kind of my high school sweetheart or whatever. Um, so there's some parts of my story that seem pretty traditional. And then also I can really relate to people a little bit more on the fringe people who don't have the traditional family or who have gone through, um, divorce with their parents. Um, so kind of going into motherhood, the parts that I had to really double down on and revisit were obviously the more traumatic parts, the less, um, traditional parts of my childhood, And those are the parts also of my life that I don't really have a lot of memory about. Um, Something with earlyhood, uh, early childhood trauma is you often don't remember, you often block those things out. And so I don't really have a lot of memories until I was um, the age of eight, which I don't know if that's like normal. I mean, I have one friend who has a very, very artistic brain. Um, she has memories of like being one and a half and two years old, which I think is kind of incredible. Um, and I just don't really have as much of those, but revisiting my early childhood trauma when I became a mother was really important to me because, um, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't, um, impressing my own, um, trauma and my, I knew I had some attachment issues, um, in attachment psychology that I really needed to explore. And I was really, really intentional about working through that stuff and starting therapy shortly after she was born, because I wanted her to have the more traditional, stable part of my upbringing that I, I look on so fondly. I wanted her to have that experience and not the, um, the trauma part. So I don't know what kind of specifics you want from my life and and who I am and where I'm at now and my husband and my kids ages and stuff like that. But that's kind of, um, going into motherhood. That's kind of where I was coming from. My loves, we are going to take a quick break from the podcast interview with Brittany because I have something really exciting that I want to share with you and time's a ticking to be able to jump in on it. So here we are now, and I'm going to tell you about the feminine spirit school. I have been coaching women for seven years now without a break. And I love, 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 love coaching women. So that's been seven years of me going deep with all of these women, hundreds of women in my personal practice, thousands of women in my inbox and my Instagram. And I receive a lot of the same questions and we do a lot of the same kinds of work. So I've been thinking recently, how can I reach more people to go into ancestral healing creating their own feminine flow and fire, becoming their own sacred masculine warrior, setting boundaries, learning how to speak with more authority and truth, learn what it's like to calm your nervous system, to do inner child healing work, to do sensual work, to do feminine embodiment, more meditations, and do all of this in a way that feels feminine. Because if you're learning anything from me recently, what I'm really trying to integrate into your life that what you learn about the feminine is really important, but how you learn about it is even more important. Are you learning about the feminine and listening to these podcasts, feeling stressed and anxious and rigid? 
Or are you learning with a cup of tea and a nourishing atmosphere with candles and making a ritual out of your life? You don't have to be doing all those things, but the energy of what you do everything is really important. And so I wanted to create this course, not like many other courses are created where you're jam packed with information and there's a pressure to get it done quickly and you feel pretty isolated. I wanted to do this course with sisterhood. So therefore, everyone starts the course together. We're beginning May 27th, the Feminine Spirit School. There's a WhatsApp group. There's a Facebook group. There are two calls with me in this group. There are eight weeks of deep diving work, but only one module is released per week with a break in the middle. So I did that so that you have the sisterhood aspect, what I am so uh, on fire about when it comes to my retreats. That's why one of the reasons why I love retreats so much is because it is done with this sisterhood energy. And I want to bring that into the school. So the WhatsApp group is there for daily contact, and then the Facebook group is there to keep it more connected on a broader scale whenever you want to share things while you're on Facebook, really, and so that I can do these calls with you. Um, In this, we're going to be covering, like I said earlier, so many different areas, including the feminine and the masculine, shadow work, feeling your feelings, being embodied, pleasure, sensuality, um, inner child work, healing, setting boundaries, discovering your wounds, having assignments too. Not to the point where you can't do this course while you're also going to school or having a family or reading books. You can do all of that while doing this course. And another beautiful thing is that you have access to it forever. What you may not have access to forever is the amazing early bird special that I'm doing right now, which the doors close on, on May 21st. Okay, so put that in your calendar. May 21st at 11.59 p.m. EST, early bird closes. Here's the beautiful thing about the early bird. It is $250 cheaper than the actual ticket to the course. And if you pay in full, it's an additional $50 off. So if you do the early bird and you pay in full, you get $300 off of a course that's worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, honestly, because you are getting not just eight weeks, right? You're not just getting seven modules and eight weeks long of of this program, you are getting the tens of thousands of dollars I have invested in my teachers and my coaches. You're getting all of that pretty much into a beautiful, concise program. Last but not least, I also made it so that payment plans are available for anyone that doesn't want to pay up in front and you'll still be getting 250 off. So remember this, the early bird closes May 21st, 11.59 p.m. EST. I will be doing posts about it. I'll write emails about it. I will remind you on Instagram. But you also probably want to put this in your calendar just so you know. And the doors actually close on May 26th at 6 p.m. EST. So you can still sign up after the early bird. It'll just be 250 more. So know that you can join until May 26th. But we also want you to get in earlier so you can get access to the Facebook group early and you can get access to the resource list. You can start poking through the books and videos and all the people that uh, you will be learning from inside the course and their knowledge that I have gained to put into this beautiful feminine spirit school. This is my baby. This is my project. This is the thing I'm going to be focusing on for the 
uh, foreseeable future. I am humbly taking a step away from one-on-one coaching for now. So if you have been waiting to do one-on-one coaching with me until the time is right, well, the time will not be right for a while because I am no longer going to be doing one-on-one coaching. Surprise! (laughs) This is a new piece of news for many people. Um, And I would really, really, really love to work with you, just not in that capacity right now. This is the capacity, this group coaching, that feels good and feels right. Plus, you will be paying one-sixth of the cost going through the course than doing one-on-one coaching with me, and you'll still be learning so, so much. So I would love to have you in this group. If you have any questions at all, you can email me at uh, hello at maddiemoon.com, or you can email my assistant, Brandy, with an I, at maddiemoon.com, and we would love to see how we can help you make a decision to see if this group is for you, because it's going to be amazing and juicy and inspirational and beautiful and just like all the yummy, yummy things, and I just can't wait. All right, I think it's time to head back on over to this amazing interview with Brittany, so let's go. This is this is such beautiful insight. Thank you for sharing, and I'm, I'm particularly curious about your um, the attachment work that you've done. Mm-hmm. And so what attachment style came, came up for you as something that was really strong and how was it affecting your relationships? Yeah. I'm so grateful to talk to you about this because you're one of the very first people that I heard speak on attachment styles that use the same language that I did and knew kind of what they were talking about. Um, and I just loved the podcast interviews that you did on attachment oh, style where we are today. It's so I know. cool. I love it's so that. cool. So, um, I wasn't really aware of attachment styles until I started, um, I mean, this is how my brain works. I got pregnant with my daughter. Um, she was an unplanned pregnancy and I just kind of was like, well, I need to heal my early childhood trauma. (laughs) So I basically just like got a book on how to do that. And I would really recommend anybody who's listening, who wants to be a parent or is a parent to explore Dr. Daniel Siegel's work. Um, he has a couple of books, whole brain, uh, child, no drama discipline and parenting from the inside out that are, um, really psychology minded. Um, but they really hone in on, um, not impressing your own personal trauma onto your children and going back to those early childhood memories and healing them. Um, which is so important. I think a lot of people want to skip over that part and just think, well, no, I need to focus on how I'm parenting today, but you really, you will unconsciously, um, impress your trauma and your attachment style onto your children if you don't work through that stuff. And so as a child, I had a really anxious attachment to my mother. Um, my early childhood was very, uh, traumatic and dramatic. My dad was really deeply abusive, but he never abused me. He, he, um, he beat my mom really badly. She was in the hospital a lot. He was in prison in another prison a lot. And so obviously, you know, as a baby in the womb, um, when my mom was, my mom was on welfare, when I was in the womb, we went through some really scary stuff when I was already just in the womb, that stuff really stays with you. Um, they can predict through the conflict that a partner and like a husband and wife or a partnership goes through. Um, if there's a lot of stress on a relationship, even while a woman is pregnant, they can predict the emotional health of a child based on her cortisol levels. Um, I just listened to a podcast about this with Dax Shepard, where they test like children's urine and they can kind of base that, uh, the cortisol levels in children's urine on like how healthy the marriage is, things like this. Wow. Um, I know. So people kind of, I think roll their eyes at the idea that you can experience trauma while you're in the womb, but it is really rooted in science and it is very real. 
So, I mean, I obviously don't remember being in the womb. I don't remember being a little baby and, and seeing my dad beat my mom. I don't remember a lot of these things, but I can see in my attachment style, even when we got to a safe, secure place, my mom remarried at when I was the age of eight, I had a really, really stable life from eight to 18, but I still had a really, really, um, anxious attachment to her. I couldn't really go for sleepovers. Um, I, I really worried about her dying a lot. I would have a stomach ache every night and I didn't really know what anxiety was, but I remember telling her like, I just don't feel good every evening. And she asked why. And I said, I'm just, I can't sleep because I'm afraid that you'll die when I'm sleeping. And that's what an anxious attachment looked like for me. It was like my whole world was my mother, which makes sense because my father was such an erratic character. Um, and then, you know, being in foster care and not knowing sometimes where my mom was, she was my whole world and my, my only sense of like what, what it meant to belong and to feel grounded and know who I was. Um, and that really translated into like early ch- or, um, middle school and early adolescence. Um, I really, I was so deeply attached to her and what she thought of me and, um, I needed to be with her. And so going into marriage, um, that attachment style transferred over to my husband. Um, my mom and I had a falling out right before I got married. And so I kind of had to heal that attachment style because she wasn't in my life for a short time. Um, and so obviously I couldn't, you know, rely on her so much and be so clingy to her and have this unhealthy emotional attachment to what she thought about me, but that transferred over to my husband and it wasn't as unhealthy. Um, there's a quote, I wish I had it in front of me that says, um, it's actually, I don't know if you know, Vienna, um, fan phantom. Um, she does on Instagram. She's mindful. Um, she's a mindful therapist, mindful MT or something on Instagram. She's a, she's a big time, like New York marriage and couples therapist. Anyway, she has this quote where she says marriage in marriage, we do the work that we didn't finish in childhood. And it's really, really true. I think marriage offers an opportunity, um, for each partner to parent the other, um, which sounds kind of weird and gross, but it's really, it's really, really true. Like my husband, um, really, nurtured me and helped me heal that anxious attachment. Um, and I have parented him in a lot of ways as well, where you really fill in those gaps that your parents missed and kind of, um, heal that inner child. And so when I got married, the anxious attachment to my mother, um, kind of morphed over into my husband. And I used to lay awake at night and really be afraid of what would happen if my husband died. And that's when I started to realize, okay, this isn't just like, oh, I'm an anxious person. I'm afraid of death. I started to realize this is a pattern. The person that's most important in my life, I am over attached to, and I feel very anxious about losing them or how they define me. Or I, I had this like kind of obsession with what my husband thought about things. I wouldn't really, um, commit to an idea or an intellectual thought if I didn't think he agreed with it. And thankfully I have just the most incredible, kind, um, amazing husband. So he, you know, that was never like, he was never emotionally controlling or like, you have to think this way or be this way. He's such an open person and he holds everything really loosely in his hands. So in that way, he provided healing for me because he never really, um, wanted to control me. He never really used that attachment against me. And, um, Yeah. So that's when I started to realize I had an anxious attachment to both my mother and my husband. And 
shortly after I had my first child, I started reading Dr. Daniel Siegel's work and started um, working towards healing my attachment style. And that's also when I started um, therapy. Mm. Do you feel that your fear around those you love dying has dissolved with the healing of your attachment style? It has. It's totally gone away. Um, it used to be where I would just get so worked up if my husband would go hunting or he'd be working late. Um, I would really be sure he was dead. Like I would convince myself he had died and then already would be like planning the funeral and like writing the obituary Mm. in my mind. It was really obsessive. And I used to just cry and cry and say to him, like, I I don't know what I'll do if you die. You can never die. And he would just say to me in his very like, um, practical, he's an Enneagram five, like he's very cerebral and methodical. We're total opposites. He would just say to me, well, I'm never going to die. Like that would be his way of like trying to appease me. And in my very childlike, I know in my very like childlike state, I'd be like, okay. Like I would just believe him like, okay, you're never going to die. I just don't have to open this box. And then when I learned about attachment styles and I realized that the reason I was afraid to lose my mother and the reason I was afraid to lose my husband was because I was so deeply like my, my soul had morphed with their souls. I couldn't see myself as an individual person outside of them. Um, when I started doing the therapy around my early childhood and why I had so deeply bonded with my mother through all of the trauma that we experienced together. Um, when I started to do that work and also the work of, like really stepping into my feminine energy and exploring my intuition, that stuff really started to heal. My therapist was the first person to tell me like, you need to trust yourself. And when I started to step into my own, I no longer had that compulsion to ask my husband what he thought about things and to run everything by him and to process things with him. And then as that dissolved, I really, I mean, I don't want him to die, but I'm not I don't, I don't think I would fall apart. I have my own identity and I know who I am and I don't have to, I don't, I never think about losing people in my family now. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to look a little bit now at the actual part of motherhood in your life with emotions, Mm -hmm. because that's something that originally, I mean, you had written a post from my site and if anyone wants to go read that, I'll make sure I have the link to it on the show notes for this. Um, and it was all around, do good mothers feel angry? Mm-hmm. Do good mothers get angry? Mm-hmm. And so I would love if you took us back to maybe one of those nights where you had one of those experiences of really touching base with your anger. And mm-hmm. some of the, what I imagine from remembering that post and some of the things you've talked about, there's like this inherent feeling of guilt and mm-hmm. shame because like you mm-hmm. said earlier motherhood is like a is did you say it was like a a, a tribe so you said mm-hmm. like everyone kind of yeah everyone kinda it's very around. tribal yeah very, it's tribal. very tribal and so if other mothers aren't revealing their anger you know at all mm-hmm. and talking about it yeah I'm, I'm sure it becomes like a regular thing to think that mm-hmm. good moms don't feel yeah. anger and definitely don't feel anger at their kids yeah so that's i'd love so true. to hear your perspective on that Yeah. So, um, I think a lot of people confuse postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression as feeling sad or feeling, um, like you want to hurt your children, or sometimes it can manifest as like feeling like you're the only person that can take care of your kids and you can't trust anyone else because you love them so much. But for me, um, shortly after I had my first daughter, I had a night where, 
she screamed. She wasn't a colicky baby, but there was just one evening she was probably picking up on my anxiety because she's a very intuitive child, but she just could not stop screaming. And I was trying to get her to sleep. And you often have to rock babies like so aggressively to get them to calm down. And I just got to a point where I knew that I couldn't hold her anymore because it was like, what if I just hit her head on the crib and then she'd finally go to sleep. Um, and I was really surprised by those thoughts. And I, I called a friend and I was like, you've got to come put my baby to bed for me. And I felt so deeply ashamed because my postpartum anxiety had kind of convinced me like I'm the only person that can take care of my baby. And I was so afraid of passing on an anxious attachment style to my first child that I didn't let anybody else help with her because I wanted her to properly attach to me. I wanted her to know that I was always there. And so then you can see that I was actually subconsciously making her anxiously attached to me Mm -hmm. because she needed, I needed her to need me. Um, and so that was kind of my first experience with feeling angry as a mother. Um, and because I'm an Enneagram two, I have a really hard time feeling negative emotions. And so I kind of just justified as a two. An Enneagram two is the helper. And so a healthy, a healthy Enneagram two, um, wants to serve people out of just benevolence and the goodness of their own heart, but an unhealthy Enneagram two really needs to be needed. And so they create that kind of around them where they make people dependent on them. And so I, I needed my daughter to need me and so, so that I could kind of soothe myself into believing that she was healthily attached to me. And I kind of, because I have a hard time feeling negative emotions, I kind of justified that feeling of like just being so angry with her that I wanted her to sleep no matter what. I just said, oh, well, that's just, you know, postpartum anxiety that will go away. And I didn't really feel any more anger towards her until, um, I mean, not in a scary way, obviously you feel frustrated and whatever, but the post that I wrote for you was really about like a type of anger. I'd never heard other mothers talk about, like you were saying, like, because motherhood very much is like, we're just watching each other and kind of seeing what's normal. What are other people doing? What are other children doing? Because I had never heard anyone say like, I don't like my kids right now. I don't want to be a mother right now. I feel so angry. Um, I had never really heard anyone speak about that when I had my second child. Um, my daughter was only 19 months old and I had two little babies under two and around the four month mark, a lot of women go through a really, really intense hormonal shift that a lot of doctors don't really talk about or acknowledge. Um, again, this is the tribal part of motherhood, right? Where we know that around the four month mark, your hormones flip flop and you can have a couple of weeks where you really think, "Uh Oh, now I finally have postpartum depression. But if you can get through those few weeks with, you know, talking to your doctor and your support system, a lot of times that stuff levels out, but nobody really talks about it. So when you're in it, you're like, what's happening? Like I thought at four months postpartum, I was doing pretty good. Why am I all of a sudden feeling these really, really intense emotions and having this hormone switch? So that happened to me when my son was four months um, old and I had a 23 month old, so almost two year old toddler who I was trying to potty train. And when you become a mother, if you choose to become a mother, Maddie, just put this down somewhere already that potty training is the hardest and worst thing you'll ever do in your life. (laughs) It literally almost put me in the hospital with such bad anxiety. It's such a hard thing. So anyway, I had this intense rage towards my daughter during potty training And I just kept trying to suppress it and suppress it and suppress it until obviously it just became too much and it manifested as really, really bad. 
anxiety. And I'm going to be super honest. And there's people listening to this that don't know me. And so they might think, wow, this is person is a really terrible mom. Um, also, can I curse on this? Podcast? Yes, you can. <laughs> okay. So one of these nights where I was feeling just like really ragey towards my kids and kept trying to suppress it because I can't feel negative emotions because then that means I'm not a good person. I was trying to get my son to bed and my kids share room. And so there's this added pressure of like every time the baby wakes, not wanting to wake the toddler. So you try to get him to be quiet as quickly as possible. And I went in to rock him and I picked him up. I I felt really calm, but I picked him up and when he started to cry, the first thing that just popped out of my mouth before I could even think was go to sleep, you little piece of shit. And I was just, I, I literally like kind of was taken aback. I was alone in this room with my kids. No one was there. And I was so ashamed at the fact that that had even come out of my own mouth. I was like, who said that? Like, this is like you said at the beginning of the podcast, like I am like an earth mama. I am made for motherhood. I love my children. Like my kids are so beautiful. They, I just love them so much. And yet I also had this part of me where I was like not doing okay. And I had this rage that was so suppressed and that really shocked me. Um, so I put him to sleep and I obviously was like, well, we need to think about this in the morning. What's going on here under the surface. And for a while, I just carried that shame with me where I, I've actually never had anything in my life quite as shameful as the anger in motherhood. I have gone through some really shameful things. I was molested as a child. I've been sexually assaulted. I've, I've had some really shameful stuff happen, but I've always had the wherewithal to tell somebody and know that if I share this with someone, I will feel better. But the shame around being an angry mother was so deep that I couldn't even talk to my husband about it. And that's when I Googled do good moms get angry because I was so ashamed of myself that I was like, I can't tell a friend. I can't tell my therapist. They're going to take my kids away. You know, I was so ashamed that I had become this angry parent that I didn't want to be. I wanted my children to have this healthy attachment style. And instead I had become this like really ragey mom. And so it took me a while to be honest with a friend that I trusted who had experienced postpartum anxiety and just tell her, the thing I had said to my little baby son and know that she was going to understand. And I remember it was a rainy summer night and we were sitting on my front porch and I was trying to get the kids to bed and I could feel that rage boiling up. And I said to my husband, like, I can't do this. You have to do this because I'm not okay. And I went out on my front step and I texted my friend Jody Ray. And I just said, I need you to come over. I'm not okay. And it was that kind of similar moment with my daughter being little when I called a friend and was like, I'm not okay. And she came and I, I just was really honest with her. And I remember feeling so scared that she was going to say like, wow, you're a monster. Like this is not a normal thing to feel. And I said out loud what I had said to my son and she just looked at me and she said, yeah, that's normal. And I just remember this like wave of emotion. Mm -hmm. I just wept and wept. I felt so relieved. I mean, it's not the word normal doesn't mean it's good. It's bad. It's something that you want to happen, but it's common. This is a thing that is common for women. And so that gave me the courage to, um, start being more honest on Instagram about women and suppressing anger and not knowing what to do with anger. Um, and then that also gave me the courage to reach out. I had been seeing a therapist, but then I reached out to a cognitive behavioral therapist or a, a psych nurse rather who does CBT, um, just at a local hospital. So it was free. And I started doing CBT, which is very, very effective for treating anxiety, CBT? cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, okay. 
So it's a very common form of therapy for people with anxiety and depression. And it's actually um, been proven to be more successful than antidepressants for a lot of people. Um, and I, so I went to CBT specifically for just dealing with the anger and the anxiety that I had around potty training my toddler while having a little baby. Um, and I remember the psych nurse saying to me, um, like I told her the story of all of this anger I've been feeling. I'd been feeling so angry towards my daughter to the point where I was like afraid that I was going to smack her or something. Cause I was just like, the anger was just so in my body, you know, like I was just really feeling it in my body. And I remember telling the psych nurse this and she, again, she just looked at me like with a very blank face. And she was like, do you think other moms don't feel this way? And I was like, absolutely. Like, there's no way, you know, I thought of all of my friends and I thought there's no way any of my mom friends feel this way. Like, there's just no way there. None of them are a monster. Like I'm a monster. And she just was like, that's just not true. Like they for sure feel this way sometimes. And maybe they don't share those stories with you, or maybe it's not in the same way. Um, but they definitely feel this kind of like really, really scary anger. And she didn't address whether it was good, whether it was bad. She just handled it so neutrally that I was able to give myself, it took a long time. Um, but I was able to give myself some grace eventually. And by the time I wrote the post for you, do good moms get angry? I really believed that. Yeah good moms get angry. But while I was going through the really angry season and while I was going through CBT, I really just believed in the back of my mind, like, no, I am the only mother that feels this way. And this is, this is not okay. And my kids are going to be wrecked for sure. I've ruined them already. And that was again, like the most shameful thing to work through. I spent a lot of time in therapy working through, um, you know, the abuse of my childhood and fearing that I had somehow already ruined my children. And I had already given them all of these issues, um, that they were going to have to deal through, deal with as adults. And for me, that's what mom guilt, um, really looks like is, is this, I think all of mom guilt, like the fear that you're not doing good enough for your kids or you're spoiling your kids, or you're not giving them the best opportunities, or you're spending too much time away from them, whatever the mom guilt looks like. I think it really boils down for all women to this fear that you're not a good mom, that the truth is you're actually not good enough to parent your kids. And somebody is going to realize that. And I think we all have to do the work to heal that wound and to learn how to mother ourselves and to heal the wounds from being mothered as children as well. So what would you say for someone that's experiencing a lot of this mommy guilt and doing, what would that doing the work typically look like? And I know the path to that is going to be different for everybody, mm-hmm. but like specifically I'm thinking of anger and let's say mm-hmm. part of doing the work for someone that has mommy guilt is to actually validate their own anger and their feelings. Mm-hmm. And then how would you suggest based off of your own experiences, people embody that anger and they go into mm-hmm. that anger. Do you would you invite other mommies to go into their anger, like set some sort of sacred space, whether that be a container with a therapist where the therapist mm-hmm. actually teaches them to yell and feel or going on like a wild woman retreat or simply crying in the bathtub? What has been one of the ways you have personally released those that that feeling of anger like and did simply acknowledging it and speaking it out loud help to just mm-hmm. dissolve it? Yeah. So the thing with anger is your brain, when you feel angry, your brain sends signals into your body to find a way to release that anger, right? It really activates that flight and fight. 
instinct where you want to smack something or hit something or let out a really loud roar. It's why our voices rise when we're angry. Like it's just this very primal thing. And something I learned in cognitive behavioral therapy is that when you feel angry, like say you're, you're feeling angry at your child and your instinct is to smack them or to be really, really loud and aggressive and angry. Um, when you kind of quote unquote, give in to that reflex, your brain can't actually tell the difference between hitting your child or walking into the other room and hitting a pillow. Your brain recognizes both of those things as a release of that anger. And it validates that for you and says, there, you finally got it out. Now you feel better. But with parenting and in cognitive behavioral therapy, what I learned was that I, you will not feel better. And so it's not actually a matter of finding a way to physically release the anger because I don't feel better after I yell at my kids. My brain tells me they're being naughty. If you yell, you're going to feel validated and that anger is going to be released, but that isn't what happens. Then I feel shameful and I feel like I've hurt them because my kids don't need to see me yell to listen to me and obey. They don't need to see me be physical to listen and obey. Um, and so it actually takes, and in CBT, they give you, you know, homework and, 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 um, a way to apply this. It actually takes a moment of you recognizing, I want to yell. I want a physical release for this, but I know that I've done that in the past and it doesn't work and I will not feel better. And so for me, it's, it's, yeah, it's therapy. It's having that container where I can say and, and express the things that I feel are so ugly um, that I don't want anyone else to know. It's finding friends um, that you can talk and just really be honest with. And that has to be, you know, in a safe space. Um, for me, I do a lot of walking. Like when my kids go to bed afterwards, bedtime is such a triggering thing, basically for all moms. <laughs> it's such a hard thing. So I try to do a walk instead of just like mindlessly scrolling or watching TV after they go to bed. I try to do something kind of physical. But the biggest thing actually is just validating the anger for myself and learning to be, I, I have such a hard time sitting with my emotions. I want to really fix them right away. Um, I want to suppress them if they're negative emotions. And so kind of exploring anger and really validating it for myself, um, has really helped. I'm trying to teach my now three-year-old daughter that, you know, when she's sad, she doesn't need to fix it. She'll often come to me and say, mom, I'm just so sad about something. She's a very empathic kid. And instead of being like, Oh, well, why are you sad? And, and trying to make her feel better. I'm starting to teach her. You can feel sad and just continue to breathe. And the sadness will come and the sadness will go. Mm. And I'm trying to offer myself that same grace and that same practice in my anger. It's a lot harder for me because I have, you know, all these ideas around anger that, you know, good women don't get angry and good Christian women don't get angry. And the post that I wrote about you, I think I touched a little bit on how women specifically suppress their anger a lot more than men, because we don't want to take up too much space. We don't want to be seen as aggressive. We don't want to be seen as, a bitch. you know, yeah, bitchy, anything like that. Exactly. So obviously anger when it's involving children is a little bit different, but I would also just say that outside of mothering, find ways to express anger, um, in a way that feels safe. Like I've had experiences in the last few years where I've noticed I've gotten really angry about something and my instinct is to suppress it or try to fix it. And instead I've kind of let myself throw, throw a tantrum mm. and to just say out loud, I feel so angry about this. And sometimes I do that with my kids. My daughter's at an age now where, um, I feel like she can understand when I'm kind of getting out of control instead of just, 
you know, continuing to push, I'll say to her, I'm feeling very frustrated right now. I need to have some space or just letting her know where my emotions are at. And then it gives her language as well. Instead of saying I'm angry and then smacking her playmates, you know, and expressing that anger, I'm trying to show her how to be a container for her own emotions. And a book that I recently read um, called The Conscious Parent is really a blend between Western psychology and like a child's brain and our brain around trauma and emotions. And then also a bit of Eastern philosophy of, of how to sit with your emotions and not try to, how to really be present. And I think the biggest struggle in motherhood for every single mother is being present, is staying in the moment with your children because children are tornadoes and they grow up in the blink of an eye. We're always moving forward. We're always moving on to the next activity. We're always thinking about when do I need to feed them next? Who needs a diaper change? And the, the, um, the discipline and exercise of being present in motherhood has been the biggest thing with healing my anger. I still get angry. I still, um, don't allow myself to feel my emotions. I mean, I, just last night I had kind of a disappointing thing happen for me personally. And I moved right out of that moment of, of feeling disappointment into serving my kids supper. And then when they wouldn't eat their supper, I just blew up at them. I was so angry and I could cognitively see this is not about supper. I feel disappointed in something that happened to me personally. And I'm projecting that onto my children. And so I had the wherewithal to put them to bed early um, and to go for a walk. My husband was home and to just process that disappointment. And I would say to any mom that's struggling with anger to just really learn to find a way to validate your own emotions. I think therapy is something all people should do regardless, like just having a space where someone has to listen to you and has to be neutral about what you're telling them is such a valuable thing. But if therapy isn't an option, um, I would really suggest a daily meditative practice. I've been meditating just five minutes in the morning before my kids wake up to just get in touch with myself before I'm having to think about them. Um, another thing that I like to do and I started doing when I just felt that constant mom guilt, like it was ridiculous. I, there was nothing that I couldn't do anything perfectly for my kids. I felt, and I felt that no matter if I stayed at home and played with them all day, I felt guilty at the end of the day. If I took them out and did fun things with them all day, I felt guilty at the end of the day. And it was to the point where like, I remember one day I took them for a walk in the stroller twice in one day as kind of like a break for myself. And I felt guilty that I took them for two walks because I was like, Oh, these poor children. I'm just like making them go for a walk when they could be doing something else. And I remember thinking like, this is ridiculous. There are kids in the world who don't even eat twice a day. Like your kids are fine if they go for a walk twice in one day. But I feel like this mom guilt, it just, it really comes back to us wondering if we're good moms and really being afraid that we're doing it wrong. And something that I did in that season was, um, I worked backwards. So this is a really great tool in any area of your life where you feel like you're missing the mark on something is to work back and ask yourself, well, what did I think this was going to look like? Or what do I think the ideal is? And so I literally wrote on, on paper, like, what is the perfect day as a mom look like? How do I, when I go to bed at night and I feel like, Oh, I'm such a good mom. What would that day have looked like? So I worked backwards from that. And I started to realize that there was no day where that was going to happen. It wasn't, it wasn't a certain combination of activities and going out and keeping the house clean and whatever. I realized that it was like, it was just this internal thing of like, I just don't feel like I'm good enough. 
And when I was really struggling with the anger, I said to my husband, it's a really scary thing to realize that I just can't do it right. I cannot be the mom for them that I want to be. And that's just in reality, not true. Um, I think the mom guilt comes back to that fear of not being able to be a good enough mom. And maybe even asking yourself, what did my mom do as when I was a child that I felt made her a good mom? And also what did my mom do as a child that I think makes her a bad mom? For me, I mean, my experience might be different than some people's, but my childhood obviously really has affected how I parent. And I had to really work through this idea that my mom was a quote unquote bad mom because I was in foster care, because I was molested as a child, because I had a really, really difficult teenage years. I I was really working through my childhood at 15, 16, and I didn't realize it. And I was acting out in all sorts of really, really dangerous ways. And when I became a mother, part of the work of healing that attachment uh, style and part of the work of working through my anger and all of that was really pressing into why do I think my mom was a bad mom? Why do I think she missed the mark? And really healing that wound and realizing it takes a lot to be a bad mom. There are actually very few bad moms. There are mostly only moms who are doing their best. And anybody might look on paper and think, oh, well, if you if your kids end up in foster care, if you can't control your anger, if you struggle with addiction, if you have an eating disorder in motherhood, you're definitely a bad mom. But what I've, what I've realized in exploring my feminine energy and becoming less black and white um, and becoming a softer version of myself in motherhood, what I've realized is that, that it, it is never that black and white. It, there's not a lot of good moms and bad moms. There's only parents who are really doing their best. And I think a lot of women don't realize that it does take a lot to be a bad mom. And I think, honestly, the only thing that it takes to be a, ma- a bad mom is giving up. I think my mom, what made her a great mom and what makes her a great mom is that she never gave up. Um, she kept her kids together um, the best that she could. And, and part of that looked like a time in foster care so she could get her life in order and then have us all back together with her. And she fought so hard to um, keep us together, to keep us fed, to keep us safe. And she did her best. And that's what makes a good mom. And even though, I mean, do I want to say to my baby in the middle of the night, go to sleep, you piece of shit? Do I want to feel angry at my children? No, absolutely not. I want them to have a totally unblemished childhood. But the reality is those things, even those things don't make me a bad mom, giving up on them and giving up on myself and saying, nope, I can't do this. I really am not good enough for them and packing my bag and walking out the door. That's the only moment I become a bad mom is when I stop coming back for them, when I stop coming back for myself. And that work is so hard, Madeline. Like motherhood is is so exhausting. It's so demanding. There isn't a lot of opportunity to press in and to be more intentional and to ask these hard questions. It's so, it's so demanding. There's not a lot of time for that stuff, but it's so important because I want to keep coming back for my kids. I want to keep coming back for myself. I want to continue to heal my own mothering wounds with my mom. And I want to continue to heal with my children. And, and that looks like I apologize to my children every single time that I raise my voice with them. 
I always acknowledge when I've made a mistake, even though it's really hard. And in especially Christian views on parenting, a lot of times it's from the top down and it's you're the authoritarian and they need to listen to you. But in our home, I'm very quick to go to my daughter and say, I shouldn't have raised my voice at you. It's not kind to yell. In our family, we don't yell at each other. We speak respectfully and you deserve the same respect that I deserve. And I also extend that to her. She's not I don't allow her to raise her voice at me. And if she wants to feel angry and express her anger in that way, we find a better container for it and a better way to express it. And I think that's, that's the thing that I really feel all moms need to know, especially when it comes to mom guilt. And especially when it comes to anger, that it takes a lot to be a bad mom. And the, the, the thing to remember is that if you don't give up, you're going to be a good mom in the end, you know, you just have to keep at it. I can I can just like sense right now all the people listening to this that just received the one sentence they probably have never received before is that it actually mm-hmm. takes a lot to be a bad mom mm-hmm. because I don't I've never heard anyone else say that um because mm-hmm. there's always typically so many rules that come along with being a good yeah mom. and exactly. so I'm so grateful that you just said that and there's a few nuggets in here that I'm definitely taking away with one of them is the importance of presence and mm-hmm. knowing when to step away and go do something that's good for for you to, mm-hmm. to be in the moment because I can think of my own childhood and there were times when my mom wasn't being validated for her experience maybe with my dad and so Mm -hmm. she channeled her anger into us in like moments that's right and I I can think that it's just so great now that I can like look at this situation with such a bird's eye view and Mm -hmm. and I'm not controlled by it at all because once upon a time that thing that she would have said to me when she was angry would have controlled my life but then once exactly inside I can see oh she wasn't being validated by probably my dad or there was something else going on Mm -hmm. in her life and she didn't have the tools for stepping away and taking her own bird's eye view and knowing that it was her trigger to move through and she didn't Mm -hmm. have that stuff so the first person that she got frustrated with she may have said something it happened to be me and that 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 kind of stuff really helped me when I slowed down to look at my old my own child wounds of those moments that were totally unconscious by those in my life and why would I let those very unconscious things where they didn't Mm -hmm. have tools that they needed control the rest of my future that's exactly right and also like the things that a mother is going to do that is later going to be the the thing that the child has to go to therapy for which is probably going to happen for everyone like no matter how enlightened of a parent you are your child is most likely I mean hopefully gonna go to therapy because that's a great thing to do exactly and they're gonna bring up something you did or said and that that trigger right there they experience from you is going to be an opportunity for them to become a deeper human being with healing in mind and self-care right. and self-love. So anything you do that also contributes to their triggers as, the, as an adult, as they grow up. Great. Great. Exactly. They, ha- they have a right to that and they, they mm-hmm. should have that because that makes them a deeper human being. That is so true. And there was a moment recently where I had, uh, a moment where I, you know, behaved in a way that I didn't want to. And I had to really work through this shame again around anger. And, um, I remember telling myself every opportunity that I give my children to be resilient is a gift. Even if it means that I've let them see my anger or my anxiety, I really don't wish that for them, but I am giving them opportunities, like you said, to become a deeper version of themselves and to become resilient. And that is a gift. And I think, a lot of people skip over that step of like 
they can't get to the, the place where you're at, where you say, Oh, my mom obviously didn't have the tools that she needed. I don't have to let this control me. I can release it. But a lot of people don't get there because they're so, I think hell bent on preserving their childhood and viewing their parents through this lens of like, they were good parents because we all want, like, there are going to be people listening to this. When I say it takes a lot to be a bad mom, there are going to be people who push back against that because they want to believe that they're a good mom and everybody else that's doing it differently. Isn't a good mom. And I think a lot of people want to preserve their parents and their childhood as this like perfect thing. And they don't want to revisit the pain because they need to believe that their parents did it right and therefore they're doing it right. And you can't skip that that step of feeling the pain around even small things in childhood. Like I've heard you speak about how there were moments in your childhood where you needed to be alone and allowed to feel your feelings and your parents wouldn't allow that. The door had to be open. They would come into your room, you know, whenever they wanted to. And in a perfect childhood, that thing might seem very, very small. But for a child, that isn't small. It's saying you don't have autonomy. The way you feel doesn't matter. You're not a valuable part of this family. I'm the most important part of this family and you're second to me. And people don't want to revisit even something that might seem quote unquote small because they want to preserve this idea that, no, my parents did a really good job and I'm going to do a good job and, and everything's fine. But I mean, there were a lot of therapy sessions where I had to feel very angry towards my mother where I had to feel really, really ashamed that nobody was there for me in these very, very pivotal moments in my childhood, the things that I experienced. And my therapist had to look at me and say, somebody should have been there. Somebody should have taken better care of you. Somebody somebody should have done better. And that doesn't mean that then I blame my mother and I, I say to her, you should have done better. But I allow myself the space to validate those feelings that when I was three and my dad chose abuse and alcoholism over me and he abandoned me and he walked out of my life, I get to feel the pain around that. I get to really grieve and embody that pain. And then I can move forward. And in motherhood, the greatest gift that motherhood has given me is healing my childhood and realizing my mom was doing her best. And even my father, who was so deeply abusive and abandoned me and walked out of my life and who I've never seen again, I can now even look at him and see, you know, he probably didn't have the tools that I have. He probably didn't know about becoming more conscious and healing his childhood trauma. And my mom was a single mom on welfare with four kids and a husband in prison. Yeah, she made some bad choices. Like she... She says, you know, I wish I would have done things differently, but at the end of the day, she really did do the best she can. And that doesn't mean that, you know, being molested as a child and having an abusive parent, and that doesn't mean that those things are okay. That's still painful, but those things don't have to control me. And I've never been someone who's allowed myself to be controlled by those things. But now as a mother, I'm not controlled by those things, but I have given myself the space to heal from those things and really feel that pain. Because if I don't feel that pain, I'm not going to be able to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so grateful you brought that up about it's not necessarily that you're blaming them. And though there there is a time and place for that, too, that sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like acknowledging what happened, blaming, then anger, Mm -hmm. then then you also taking your own responsibility and then moving forward. Like there's this release. And um, 
Yeah, it's a really important piece is allowing yourself. Oh, man, I wish I could remember this quote. There's oh, it's oh, yes, I remember. Okay, so Terry Cole, I was in her podcast and she said something like it's not disloyal to realize that your parents were imperfect. Oh, my goodness. That's so good. Right. And it's just like, it's oh, so good. I think so many people are afraid that if they acknowledge anything that hurt them, that their parents did, that they're being disloyal mm-hmm. and they're turning mm-hmm. their backs on them and it's not mm-hmm. disloyal. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to drop that in. Um, and I'm just That's so true, man. I'm so grateful for your, your rawness and your realness. And I want to go into the divine deep dive round now, but before we do that, where can people connect with you online? Yeah. So I'm not on social media anymore. And that is kind of the long-term plan for me. I mean, I'm open to whatever happens with that, but social media just isn't really a part of my life anymore. But my blog is very much a part of, yeah, I writing is very important to me. So people can find me at bodaciousbrittany.com and bodacious is, I mean, you'll have to Google how to spell that word, but Brittany is spelt um, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y. So Brittany, bodaciousbrittany.com. And yeah, my Instagram doesn't exist anymore. My Facebook page for my blog doesn't exist anymore. So you can find me on Maddie's blog and my blog and that's kind of it. Round of applause. <laughs> I'm just like, I think that's so cool. So I'm going to, um, since I wanted to talk to you about it and we can't really now, I'm going to tie it into the, the quick fire round. Okay. Um, and this is, this is whatever comes up for you first. So like first response doesn't have to be a long one. Just like first thing that comes up. Great. Okay. So, because I want to know, um, what has living a social media free life given you? Oh, it's given me a lot more time to think. Um, it's given me more space to pursue things I thought I wasn't good at, like cooking uh, that I'm actually, I'm really good at. Um, and it's mostly just given me, it's like waking up from a long sleep. It's given me a fresh perspective that the life that I thought I was trying to live and working towards is actually right here in front of me. This is yes, so good. (laughs) I get like goosebumps. I'm secretly like, I mean, there's a, not secretly, there's a huge ginormous, loud, totally not secret part of me that wants to live a social media life. And yet it's like my business. I so know it's, it's really challenging because I imagine like the gifts that are within being completely off the grid are just vast. And then also yeah. it's given me so much. It's given exactly. Me so oh much. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's all just about a harmony and a balance. It's just a really, really, really hard like That's place right. to create balance. It's, yeah. it's very challenging. Exactly. Um, okay. Who would you consider to be one of your number one teachers or mentors? Um, definitely Brene Brown. Um, when I first started therapy, I, I mean, I just devoured all of her books. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now Susan Stabile, um, she's my go-to Enneagram teacher. Um, Susan my therapist, I really, really look up to my therapist. I ask her a lot of, I think people don't think they can ask their therapist questions, but I ask my therapist questions like what makes you successful as a mother? Um, how do you view what, what were your new year's resolutions? Things like that. Cause I want to be more like her, which is why I go to her for therapy. <laughs> what is one must read book? Ooh, I am going to say, I read so much. I'm reading so many books right now, but I'm going to say the gifts of imperfection Mm -hmm. by Brene Brown. Also, um, Oh, you've read this one. What's it called? It's like the guy he's like traveling. (laughs) It's like Uh, one of those classic books. 
Um, He's like looking for his purpose in life. It's written by Paolo Coelho, I think it's. Oh, is. oh, 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 oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, there you go. That, that book. Yes. So good. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes is from that book. Yeah. Um, it's a really good classic of wow. like what it, Look what it looks too. like. Jeez. I know. It's one of those great books where everyone like, knows what we're talking about. Yeah, it really is, it explores like what it what it looks like to ask questions and try to find your yeah. meaning in life and stuff. What do you want to be praised for? Um, as an Enneagram two, I really want to be praised all the time. So that's something that I try to push back against with my own ego of like trying to do things that are unseen and hidden away. Um, but at the end of my life, I want to be seen as someone who really poured herself out to, like for extravagant love that just really loved people really, really extravagantly. If love tasted like a flavor, what would it be? For me, it's coffee. Like if someone offers me a coffee, they're saying, I love you. <laughs> I like it. That's a good answer. What is one of your favorite forms of moving your body? Oh, I love anything that's a class because it's fun um, because of my history with disordered eating and disordered body image. I really try to focus on having fun in my body. So I do Aquafit. I do Zumba. I'm doing a yoga class tonight with my husband. Um, I really, really love yoga. And I also really love running because it gives me an opportunity to listen to podcasts like yours. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting back into my yoga right now. I've like, I'm just constantly transitioning from one form of movement to the other. And right now my mm -hmm. body is like probably to counteract New York. It's like, let's do something really slow. But like yes. my body is so, I don't think I've ever been this tight. I do not remember the last time I was so inflexible mm. and it just because I haven't been doing yoga at all. And so I'm, it kind of feels like I'm starting from square one, which is really humbling and great. And, mm -hmm. and I'm, it's causing me to need to go slower. Yeah. The practice of yoga is, is a very humbling thing because in different seasons of your life, it looks different and you yeah. have to, you have to really come to the mat every day with like a blank slate and like just honoring that your body is going to show up however it's going to show up. And some days that may look like just being in child's pose for half an hour. Yeah. There, there was a teacher that I went to a yoga class and she said something to me like, Oh, your chaturanga needs to not go so far down. And I was kind of like, you know, my, my pride first comes up because I've done how many chaturangas in my life? Like thousands. And she said, yeah, you just want to go like this low because later on it'll help you with your arm balances, which you need more strength for. Oh, and I was okay. like so pissed by that because I, I'm oh, an yeah. acrobat that's doing handstands <laughs> on hands and like all this stuff. And I wanted to be like <laughs> later on. Yeah. And that's exactly. what yoga teaches you. Yoga. It's, it's so yeah. brilliant for that. I would have been the same way. I'll show you to where to put my chaturanga. You don't yeah. To chaturanga do. This. I was not happy about that. And, <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's yoga is very humbling and yeah. you can't control what she says or how the world nope. sees you or how you show up all the time. And it's just exactly. like every day is that beginner's mindset. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last quick fire round question I will ask you is, um, what is your favorite meal right now? I love food. I love to eat. I've always felt like I love food and eating more than most people do, or maybe that they let on. Um, I'm going to say, I am really enjoying you know, honestly, anything that I make myself, like I've really fallen in love with cooking this last year. I've made a lot of food since leaving social media that I've never made before. 
like pakoras and making pad thai myself. And I'd really like to try making um, pasta noodles in the next little while. So really anything that I make myself, I feel this sense of accomplishment. Aww. And then it's just, I made fresh buns the day before yesterday. Fresh buns. And I know. And then you just feel so accomplished and it's so delicious. Cause you're like, I made this with my own hands. Yeah. <laughs> it's so creative. It's so creative. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's so good. Lovely. Well, Brittany, man, this has just been such a, nourishing episode and the vulnerability and the rawness that you've brought. Um, I don't know how many podcasts you've done before. This is my first one, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's wild. And I'm sure that anyone's anyone who's listening to this and just heard the way that you spoke about your journey and motherhood and anger and everything you, you know what you're talking about. Like at least, you know what you are talking about. Right. Thank it's you like, so much. It feels so aligned with your soul because you're speaking from a place of like I, I've used this word, but like just rawness and, and truth. Mm-hmm. And you do it very eloquently. Yeah. Thank so you so I, much. I'm just really grateful for you. I'm so glad that I could be here with you. And it was like really enjoyable and therapeutic for me as well. It's always good to look back and reflect and kind of see the pieces falling into place. So thank you so much for the opportunity to share. You are so welcome. I will make sure that I have her website on the show notes for this episode, maddiemoon.com slash Brittany. And that's with an A dash joy. So just go there and you will get her website link and you can subscribe to that and follow along her posts. She writes wonderful, beautiful posts just about motherhood, but then also things that she's just loving, which I think those are always really fun to read. And if you have any comments, which I'm sure you will, any of you mommies out there, please leave a comment on the show notes or head on over to Instagram and let us know what you thought by sharing in your Instagram stories. You can leave a review on the show on iTunes and uh, please send this to your mommy friends or mommy to be friends or um, any mother, your mother, anyone at all that you feel would resonate with this episode. We would love for you to send it their way. And with that said, have a wonderful rest of your week and we will see all of you next Wednesday. Thank you.